Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Okay, we're in the 12th chapter, of, uh, and, and there's a whole lot of background stuff that I have to give you for this whole thing to make good sense to you. The title that was assigned is uh, Politics and Money. <clears throat> and what you need to understand about the situation in Jesus' time is Israel had had an interesting history. They began as a theocracy. Now, that's two Greek words put together. Theos, where you get theology, is the Greek word for God. And C-R-A-C-Y just means people. And it usually meant, in the Greek culture, the, the common working man. This is where the spokesman and the real power in the religious or in the in the country is really through the priesthood and sometimes the prophets but mostly through the priesthood it started off that way Aaron was Moses brother Moses was a prophet and Aaron ran it and the religious powers ran the country and that's an oversimplification, but nonetheless, that's the way it is. And you're familiar with that now, more than you may know, because in the Muslim countries that are just almost 100% Muslim, the religious uh, leaders of the country, the mullahs, the imams, the others, actually are the most powerful people in the country. They have... Out front, they'll have a president, other, but he does what he's told by the religious powers. And that's called a theocracy. And so you're familiar with that. Um, and Israel stayed a theocracy until they re requested a king. And then King Saul was selected because he was the biggest guy there. And, and nearly all the time in, in those uh, areas for hundreds of years, really, uh, the king was usually a giant of a man. David probably was the first exception, at, at least in Israel's country, Israel's history. And the union of government and religion is something that if you knew your history of the United States, you would know that it is something that we have lived with here. Now, none of us are old enough to have known uh, when this took place. Uh, but all through the 1800s, the primary message that came from the pulpits of America, there were exceptions, but the primary message was a thing called post-millennialism. A millennium is a thousand years. And in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation, it talks about the thousand years reign of Christ. And there are essentially three different ideas of the of how the millennium or when the millennium will take place and um, uh, the first one that we'll talk about is post-millennialism because that's the one that has uh, that in in our history most affected our country and still has its lingering effect through the political parties that exist today 
It's a shame that our history books don't go into detail, and you just have to get into church history almost to get these get the details. But postmillennialism, this is an oversimplification, simply says that man working with government, church working with government, will will make things get better and better and better and better until the kingdom of God is here on earth. And that was the message. That was the message that in the 17, 1800s when our country was founded and so on and so forth. Because the people came from Western Europe primarily to the United States. It wasn't the United States then, just to America. In order to have religious freedom, they no longer wanted kings to have any influence over the church. And when the founders of our country put together the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, they had this primarily, this is one of the biggest things they had in mind. And in the Constitution, there's what is, what is referred to, uh, and you'll hear it aloud to, a lot today, but it's being twisted out of its original content. It, 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 was, it was written in such a way that said that the government of the United States and religion in the United States would forever be separate. And that it was written that way saying this, because... They wanted to maintain the freedom to carry on their business in the religious arena any way they wanted to without government interference. Because in a Europe where all of them came from, they had what is referred to as a state church. My brother lived and died in Germany. That's where he retired from the military. And in Germany, and right next door to their house was the Lutheran church. The Lutheran Church is a state-sponsored church in, in Germany. And it's also in a lot of Scandinavian countries, other places too. Not unusual, some, some places, the, the Catholic Church is the state church. And it was all that way until the Reformation in, in uh, around 1500. And the preacher at the church next door, because that's when we... When I was there visiting, that's where we always went. And my nephew would whisper in my ear and translate what was going on. I don't understand German. And the preacher is actually paid by the government. The local church has nothing to do with his salary. He is an employee of the state of Germany. That's the preacher in the state church. We came, people came to America to get away from that. And there's a clause in our Constitution that says that the state will not formulate its own church or have anything to do with it. Now, that's been twisted around today and say the church should shut up in order to get, make the state free. But those are politicians that are lying to you. The, uh, so when they came to America and started preaching and in the churches there, and the freedom that we had was so overwhelming, and the country was just booming and growing, and, and uh, even the French came over and checked our prisons, and he goes back and he writes a, a summary of it, and he said, you know what? The reason America is great is because America is good. And this idea caught on that people are essentially good and working together with state 
Even though they were separate on paper, they worked together and they were going through, through their efforts to create the kingdom of God here on earth. And then after the kingdom of God was created here on earth, then Christ would come and rule over it for a thousand years. And he would, after the kingdom of God came together, then he would come, and that's the reason it's called post-millennialism. Now that's not the only one. And, and, and the, probably the only thing about this that you will remember from your, from your schoolwork is that the First World War was called the War to End All Wars. And, that, and, 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 and some of the political parties, and especially probably the Democratic Party under President Roosevelt, adopted a lot of the principles that they had put together under post-millennialism and carried them into their platforms that are even there yet today. If you look at the Democratic Party, you will see that a lot of that stuff that they advocate is really, um, you would almost call it uh, idealistic. And some of these young voices that you hear have been, you know, they bought into it that you can actually create through legislation and so on and so forth the kingdom of God here on earth. And that all came from that concept of post-millennial. And out of that, uh, then the Second World War came along, and it just blew it all to pieces. And then the, then the pendulum swung from post-millennialism, which said that things are going to get better and better and better and better and better until the kingdom of God is here on earth. It swung 180 degrees to a thing called Premillennialism. Are you guys putting that up there? Yeah. Post is first, then pre. And premillennialism, which is the dominant theory now in, our, in probably the Western world, primarily because Billy Graham was a premillennialist and he was the greatest spokesman for Christianity in the last hundred years. And it says, and this is an oversimplification, so don't hold my feet to the fire, but because we have to move on, it simply says things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until Christ comes and rules with a rod of iron and blah, 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 blah. In my humble opinion, they probably were both wrong in a lot of areas. There's actually a third, third concept. And it's, it's uh, called amillennialism. Now, this is an A negative. And it, and it means no millennium, no literal thousand years. They're saying that in the book of Revelation, where almost everything there is symbolic, that the thousand years reign is symbolic of the history of the church here on earth. And that's a very real possibility. Do we know for sure? No. Nobody knows for sure. And see, the millennium it says this. This is an interesting irony, I think. That's the reason I, kind of, I can kind of laugh at some of this stuff that they fuss about. The kingdom of God, the millennial reign, is supposed to be a thousand years of peace and justice. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you were to pick the one thing that the church has thought, fought over for the last 200 years, it would be millennialism. So I see it as being ironic that the church fights over something that's supposed to be a thousand years of peace and harmony. 
So I, I've developed a Rawlingsism, and these things are really important if you pay attention, because I have my own idea about it. And my idea is called pro-millennialism. I'm for it. And that's as far as I care to go. I'm just for it. You know, because I think God is going to do what he's going to do. And the truth of the matter is, he even tells us in his word that we don't know all those answers. He says out loud in writing, my ways are beyond your ways and they're so far above your ways that you can't even find them out. I'm just for it. God says it, I believe it, that settles it. And we can live with that. And we don't have to fuss about it because I think it's silly to fuss about things that we don't even know. I think it's kind of silly to fuss about some of the things we do know. Now, with all of that background that, if, that has affected our, our country, and if you have specific questions, I may not know all the answers to them, but I can tell you where to find them. Because when I graduated from college, I remember Mr. Lusby saying, a good education is not knowing everything, it's knowing where to find it. And, and I, I agree with that. My kids used to say, Dad, are you ever wrong? And I would say, never on purpose. Beyond that, well, you can take it for what it's worth. Now then, let's get to, let's get with that kind of background that, that has existed since history has been put on paper from the idea of a theocracy to a democracy. And we do not have a democracy. We were never intended to have a democracy. We were to have a democratic republic. A democracy says, and you have people screaming for this all the time, we need to be, a, de a democracy came, was developed in, in Greece, and it means that everybody has an equal vote. But see, our country was set up as a representative country because if you did that, then New York and California and the heavily populated states would run the country. And so they set it up so that, that the little states would have influence as well. And that's uh, why the, uh, the, 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 it was set up as a representative-type government. And we don't have time to go into the details. Uh, I used to teach that stuff in, in school. But now... So, and you, and you need to know that. All that screaming you hear on television is a bunch of political rhetoric that's not worth listening to usually. Now, Jesus walked into this system in Israel that is, even though it's ruled by Rome, if Rome were kicked out, Israel would be a theocracy. And it would be ruled by a thing of 70 important rich people called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was made up of the people that we will be reading about today in what would be a theocracy if they could have just kicked Rome out. Here's the way he starts. Chapter 12, verse 1. He then began to speak to them in parables. The them are, is the Sanhedrin and the people in the Sanhedrin. And a parable is usually a little story told with one point to be made. This is an exception. This particular parable is also an allegory. That's the reason on your little cheat sheets that you have there, if you look carefully, I've actually put together a little quiz for you that we'll answer 
as we go along. He said a man planted a vineyard. He owned that vineyard. The owner of the vineyard, which stood for Israel, or the world, is God himself. He's the owner. God created heaven and earth. It really belongs to him. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Now, believe it or not, in Israel, they still have remnants of watchtowers. We're, getting re- we're talking about the possibility of another 12, 18 months going to Israel for 10 days. If you want to go, start saving your shekels, because it's probably going to cost 3000 plus. That's everything paid. Meals, tips, everything. A, t- a watchtower looked like this. This is an old black and white picture, but it, it, it gives you a pretty good idea of what a watchtower looked like, I think. Okay, the one thing that Israel has plenty of are rocks. Now, in this watchtower, and you can see people standing around, the top of it was, was an elevated thing where they could look and oversee whether it would be an olive grove or a vineyard. In this particular case, he selects a vineyard. And in the bottom, where you see the, the tenants live there. They actually live there. In the, in the bottom of it. And if you were to, here's a picture of what it would look like uh, uh, overlooking the, the, the uh, vineyard. You can see the vines and the trees and whether it be, this would be an olive one and, and there are vineyards over on the right. And, and so they were there to, to keep people from stealing the stuff that they were growing. Believe it or not, I grew up with my father as a tenant farmer. Started on Uncle Robbie's place where daddy was paid to work for him. 50 cents a day, he got nothing other than just his pay. Later on, we moved to Mr. Lyman Bradford's place and it was different. Here, we had a tobacco base of X number of acres and when you sold the tobacco, took it to Maysville or Cynthiana and sold it, then if the check was for $3,000, daddy got to keep $1,500. Mr. Lyman Bradford got 1500 And everything there was done that way. Was any profit that was made was divided equally. Now, we were never hungry because we always had a great old big garden, and he didn't get any of that. That was ours to live on. So that's, that's, that's what he's talking about here. And, and there are remnants of these watchtowers still in, in, in Israel today. You'll see them there. And they're probably kept up primarily for, for tourists like us. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant. Now, who are these servants? Keep this in mind. This is a story that is being told that is not just a parable. It's an allegory. And so each one of these stands for something or somebody. The vineyard, creation, Israel in particular. The owner, God himself. Harvest time, he sent his servant to the tenants. Who are the servants? Who did God send year, year, and age after age to Israel to tell them this is what God wants you to do? And if you don't do it, if you don't repent, you will will be carried off into captivity. 
They were the prophets. And if you want to, they had some really interesting stories. You want to read about a really interesting one. Jeremiah's always been one of my favorites. But these guys that God sent, and there's a whole list of them in the 11th chapter of the book of, uh, of Hebrews. That's kind of the hall of fame of the faithful in the, in the Bible. Especially the Old Testament. And it taught, says that some of them were sawed in two. That's what they said happened to Isaiah. Some of them were murdered. Some were carried off into captivity. They were horribly mistreated. So, at harvest time, he sent his servants, who to represent, to the tenants, who are the, who are the guys who rented the property. And they're really, uh, they represent the people who are a part of the Sanhedrin, and if you want to know who they are, you go back to the 27th verse of the previous chapter because it tells you who they are. He says, they arrived again in Jerusalem, and when Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law who are scribes, and the elders came to him, and you add to that the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Sadducees were the liberals, Pharisees were the conservatives when it came to what they believed about the Torah. Pharisees uh, believed it literally. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And so they liked to argue about that. Now, so what happened, and the, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty. And I just threw a little cartoon-like picture of what they were doing to the prophets that came to him that you can kind of look and see that they just, this is the way they treated them. They, 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 they just said, you know, we're not going to put up with these clowns. And, they, and then he sent another servant to them, another prophet. They stuck this, struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. Sent another one, and this one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, and others they killed. These were what happened to the prophets that God sent to them to get them to live God's way so that he would be in, so they would be positioned for him to bless them. He had one left to send, a son. Now, who is God's son? Who? Jesus. Yeah, you got that one. I mean, that's kind of a hard one to miss. Any question we ask up here, always try Jesus first as an answer. You're more apt to get it right, okay? And so, whom he loved, for God so loved the world, sent his only begotten son. John 3, 6. He sent him last of all, saying, they'll certainly respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, Hey, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Okay, this is the story Jesus told. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to somebody else. Boy, this set them off. If the vineyard is occupied by the Israelites who are the chosen people of God and he replaces them with Gentiles that they hated. They said that Gentiles were, they called Gentiles dogs because a dog was, was in, in Israel was considered the, the worst varmint that you could have. It's not like these things that everybody carries around and hugs and treats better than their children today. It's a whole different thing. They were actually, you know, to refer to somebody as a dog would be uh, simple. Uh, it would be the same as being profane about them. And he said, then Jesus said, haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. 
and it's marvelous in their eyes. Then they look for a way. They hear meaning the representatives from the Sanhedrin. Who are they? They're the scribes, and they're the richest ones. The Pharisees, they're the liberals. Sadducees, they're the uh, uh, Sadducees are the liberals. Pharisees are the conservatives. And so these these were uh, the, the people who made up. And there were some good guys there. They weren't all bad, but the, the, their influence was not good when it came to Jesus. And so they were so, they figured this out. This story that he's telling, this, which is an allegory, they said, he's talking about us. And they were right. He was talking about them. And then it says in verse 12, then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now, here's what they were looking to do. They were trying to put Jesus. These are smart people. These are the best educated people and the wealthiest people, most influential people in all of Israel. And they were trying to do what we say in, in logic is to put our opponent on the horns of a dilemma. Now, what you do when you put your opponent in, in debate in the horns of a dilemma is either answer he gives will get him in trouble. That's why it's called a dilemma. If he says, if he answers, if he says uh, one thing, and we're getting to this in taxes, because they're taking turnabout, attacking Jesus, trying to get him in trouble. And so we'll read it first and then we'll go. So the first one that they try to trapping on is having to do with taxes. And here's what it said. And there were several different kinds of taxes. There was a temple tax, for instance. And we, you can look at those. We have a list of them here. There's a list of taxes that they all had to pay. Now you're familiar with one of them. You're familiar with what was referred to as a poll tax. Now here's what the government prerogative was. They, they had to produce, they had to give to the Romans 10% of everything that the ground produces. This is the, whether it's the animals to feed off the ground or uh, olive oil or uh, grapes or wine or whatever. 10% of that, that was what we would call today a flat tax. Everybody paid it. 10% goes in. That's not the only one. We got more. If you just if you worked for a living and got paid a salary, 17% of your gross income went to the Roman government. Rome had the greatest army in the history of the world up to that time, even greater than Alexander the Great. And the greatness, you need to know this, the greatness of those militaries, whether it was Alexander or whether it was at Babylon or whether it was uh, Rome, was because they had the greatest engineers. And we could take an hour to teach that area. Okay, keep going. Then they also had what's called a poll tax. Now that word poll doesn't mean they got to vote. The word poll is, this, is, is like you poll the committee. It, it really could be translated census tax. And do you remember when Jesus was born that Mary and Joseph left and went back to his original home in Bethlehem and it was because that's, they were to go there to see, enroll everybody because everybody had to pay one denarius. One denarius, everybody had to pay it. It was just your, it, you had to pay it to live there. If you were alive, you owed one denarius if you were 12, 13 years old or older, male or female. 
And that one denarius is equal to one day's pay for a working man in a vineyard or in town or wherever. And, uh, and so, uh, and then there was one other that I didn't put up there, and it's called, and it was for the Sanhedrin, and it was called the temple tax. And if you recall, uh, in, in regard to the temple tax, it was kind of interesting because in the temple tax, everybody had to pay it whether you went to the temple or not. And they asked Jesus, because this is recorded uh, in, in another area, they asked Jesus, do, do you pay your temple tax? He said, yeah, Give me, catch me a fish. And out of the fish's mouth, you remember, he had the two denarius coin, and, 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 and that's what he did there. Now, so let's keep on reading. So taxes becomes a big issue. Why? If you can get Jesus on the horns of the limmer, dilemma they want him to say here whether he you ought to pay the tax or you shouldn't pay the tax let's read it later they mean the representatives from the Sanhedrin and in this particular case it's the Pharisees and the Herodians the Herodians are the representatives of King Herod who ruled the country came to Jesus to catch him in his words this is a trap they're trying to get him on the horns of the dilemma they came to him and said teacher we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, this is a setup. They're actually sucking up to him and building him up in order to chop his legs out from under him and, and make him look as bad as they can. You know, that's, that's obvious. Here's the question then that, that is the trap. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Who is the most hated person in all of Israel? Caesar. They hated him because the Roman army was there, especially stationed north of Nazareth, in and around Galilee, and all around Jerusalem, and over on the coast at Caesarea, named after Caesar. Northern city up there, Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar. They hated that. Now, should we pay or shouldn't we? Okay, here's the deal. If he said, yes, we ought to pay it, then the people that really, the ordinary people that really love Jesus would turn on him because they hated to pay all those taxes. We love to pay taxes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, if he said, no, we oughtn't to pay them, then the Roman government would come and get him for opposing Caesar. So they said, we got him. Whichever way he says it, we got him, which is what they want to do to start with, because he was a threat to them. You see, when he was teaching in, in, in Galilee before coming to Jerusalem, they actually heard of his reputation because thousands of people were listening to this young rabbi, and the people loved him, and they, they loved to hear him, and they loved what he was doing. He was healing the sick and helping the poor, and, and they were just really, what are we going to do? This guy is getting so powerful that he's a threat. Then he comes to Jerusalem, their power center, So they have Jesus, so either way he answered, he's in trouble. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Let's talk about hypocrisy. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is somebody who pretends to be something he isn't. Actually, it's a Greek word. 
Greek dramas at one time, for hundreds of years, were very famous. We still have a, a book of Greek dramas. You can get, go get on, Google it and get them. And if you were an actor in a Greek drama, you may have, for, you may have four actors for a whole play. They didn't change their clothes. The only thing they changed was if I'm going to play, I'm going to, uh, to, to play different roles here. If I were going to play Ralph, I, I'd go over here and I would get me a, a picture of a black man and I would hold it over my face and I would talk like Ralph. I could lay that down. If I wanted to talk like Clint, I'd get me another picture uh, of a skinny old white man and pick it up and put it on my face and I would play the role of a Clint. That mask that I hold by the stick in, in front of my face is called a hypocrite. That's the name of the mask. So what they're saying, what Jesus is saying is these guys are wearing a mask. They're pretending to be my friends. They were bragging on me. But their goal is to get me. He knew that. And then so he goes on and says to them, why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. A denarius was a coin that on one side of it had the image of Caesar, which meant that he owned it. You put my picture on a coin, it's mine. His picture was on it, it was his. That was obvious. So they brought him a coin. And he said to them, whose picture's on it? And they looked at the inscription. And they said, Caesar's. So Jesus said, okay. Since he owns this coin, you give to Caesar what's his. And you give to God what's his. He was off the horns of a dilemma, and they were frustrated. Daggone it, we let him get away. They were standing there with their mouth hanging open, looking silly. They didn't know who they were messing with. You got to know your limitations, folks. They didn't. Now, that was the Pharisees in their tent, but they're not done. Now we have the Sadducees taking their shot at him. They didn't give up in a hurry. Uh, somebody who wants to go to heaven needs to bring me a cup of water. Okay. <clears throat> then the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him with their question. Teacher, they said... Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. <coughs> now, there were seven brothers in the family. The first one married and died without leaving any children. Bill, you're going to go to heaven and you can sit right next to me. Yeah, thank you. R Ralph, t go ahead and drink your water. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Looks like black people are all the ones going to go to heaven. <laughs> uh, 
Now, so what he's talking about here, you can read in about five verses in the 25th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, verses like 5 through 10. He's talking about something that the Old Testament refers to as the leveret marriage. Actually, if you really get interested in this, there's a movie out called Loving Leah. It's a flick, chick, chick flick, whatever you call those things. And, and, and it's, it's a really good movie of, of that same thing happening today among the Hasidic Jews in New York or wherever it was. Now, here's the way this works. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married, died without leaving children. The second one married the widow. His brother married the widow. That's what Leverett marriage said, because the most important thing about a marriage is to maintain the name of the family. And a lot of, a lot of, of in, in Israel, a certain amount of, uh, of land was usually identified with the name of the of the family. And we still have that in, when I was growing up, you talked about uh, uncle, the, uh, the Pew family. You talked about, that owned different places down in Bracken County, Mason County, Harrison County. Well, the second brother married the widow, but he also died leaving. Now, this is a story that the Pharisee, that the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection were telling Jesus and they're trying to trap him. It was the same with the third. It would be like this. I had two brothers. I was the baby. And by the way, the baby has the best deal. And so my oldest brother, Gene, married Yvonne Owens. That's the bossest woman you ever saw in your life. And, and, and uh, she wondered why he stayed in Vietnam two terms. And anyway... If Gene would have died, my brother Chuck, under, if they were Jews, under the Leverett Law, in the 25th chapter of Deuteronomy, Chuck would have had to marry Yvonne. And he was already married to Mary Annie, who was almost as bossy and overbearing as Yvonne. My brothers had no taste at all in women. And, and uh, so... Chuck would marry, and the idea was for her to have children and maintain the Rawlings' name. And then Chuck would do the worst thing that he could do for his little brother. That was he would die and give me Yvonne and Marianne, two of the bossiest women on the globe. That's why my brothers were in military and stayed away as much as they could, I think. I already had the pick of the litter. I married Alice Kay, and she's not very bossy most of the time. <laughs> and so it was a pretty good deal. And now I'm stuck with them. No wonder these brothers wanted to die. I could understand that. But that's the way the Leverett Law was set up so that you could maintain the name associated with the land because Israel was called you know, God's uh, chosen people. And, and so the, that, that's what they're up to here. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the women died, or the woman died. 
the question then that the, the, the Sadducees were asking is this, and I'm running, I'm running out of time. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus answered it this way. You guys don't know your Bible. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry or be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses? In the account of the bush, that's where the burning bush was, how God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You guys are badly mistaken. Well, i got to quit because now he's going to ask what is the greatest commandment. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, and this, this is the teachers of the law. They're what we call the scribes. They were the wealthiest of them all. They were the ones who wore robes. And I'm going to take, keep you five minutes longer because this is a good story. It's the truth. That's why it's a good one. Many years ago, I've never worn a robe. You know, this is as good as it gets. And I got this one because Ralph has one just like it. No, it's Gary has one. And the black guys are going to heaven, so I try to get, be like they are. And anyway, Bill Dawson, that some of you older guys will remember, was on the radio for years. He and Zeke Mullins were the voices of Saudi County for 900 years. And uh, Bill Dawson helped us start this church, really. And he had a daughter named Melinda. Melinda lives in Chillicothe. She's still alive, married Jim Nestor and Raleigh Nestor's son. And they wanted to get married in the Methodist church because that's where Melinda had grown up. At, and then it was called Trinity Methodist Church. And they asked me if I would do it. And I said, well, you have to ask the preacher. It happened that the preacher and I were good friends. And, and they said, I said, I don't have a robe. They said, well, see if you can use his. So they asked him, and I went down, and I put on this clerical robe. It was a little too long. He was taller than I. But other than that, it worked all right. But I made a horrible mistake. You see, the scribes, they would go wearing these fancy robes with tassels on them and everything. And they'd go down the street, and some poor uh, person would come along. They'd pull it up like this rather than to have to touch them. I mean, they were a bunch of snotheads. And, and so I, I goes down to Trinity Church into the pastor's office. I put on the robe, and I looked at him, and, and he said, well, it'll work all right. I made a horrible mistake. I thought it was being, I, at times I try to be humorous. You've never caught that, but I do try to be humorous at times. And I took the robe, and I did like this, and I said, wee, Batman. <laughs> it was not the right thing to do. And... And he took some offense to it, you know. Well, the, the scribes were, would have taken offense to it too because they were impressed with who they were and what they looked like and how wealthy they were. And Jesus asked them the question, what's the most important thing in the whole cockeyed Bible? And he said, it's to love the Lord your God. And see, he, what Jesus does here is he takes, three, he takes three different passages from the Old Testament and puts them together into one statement. The first one is called the Shema, S-H-E-M-A, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord 
well, let's just read it so you can see it here. He says, Hear, O Israel, this is in verse 29, yeah. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, this went over real good because if he if, if he'd said anything other than the Shema, God is one, they really liked that because if he claimed to be the Son of God, well, we still have trouble explaining the Trinity, don't we? No one has ever really done it well. And you know why? Because God has not revealed to us how to do it yet. We don't know how to explain it, so it really is the way it is. Then he went on and he added another verse. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then he said, and if you say you love God, here's the way you prove it. You love your neighbors yourself. And if you say, it's just later on in Scripture, the Scripture says, if you say you love God whom you've not seen, and you don't love the people that you see and are around, I think you're wearing two faces. I think you're wearing two masks. Lord, listen to me, folks, and I'm going to hang it up here. If we ever get to the place where we as Christians are known because of the way we love each other, and love other people. You'll have to rent your pew to have a place to sit. That's the greatest weakness in the church has been from the get-go. There's nothing more important. The only way we have of proving that we love God is the way we love each other. That's the only way. God help us to get there. And that's why Jesus handled it the way he did it. God help us. Two things. Women, don't forget there's a Bible study. My, I, this is the way that I keep my wife from being bossy. I told her I'd take a, there's a Bible study Thursday morning, and there's a Bible study for women, and it's about Hagar, I think. One of, it's one of those wicked women. And they had more, tr- they had more fun. Tr- well, they got so rowdy in there. Thursday morning that I went to open the door to look what the heck's going on. And I can't tell you it was so bad. You'll have to go to find out. But they sure were having fun. And tell you this, first time visitors starting this morning, if you're here for the first time, never been here before, we've got a really nice gift for you back at the table. Please stop by. And from now on, if you bring a guest, make sure you stop by the table. We got a gift certificate for some really first-class pizza. Matthew, some way or another, thinks that's the same as manna from heaven. And, and, we, and we'll go from there. You've been really gracious. Give me an extra five minutes, and I'm thankful. God bless you. You're free to go. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.